Hello and welcome to Two Girls in a Pod. I am Sharon. I am Christy. And we are very excited to have a guest on today. Yes, we would like to welcome Charles Fisher, professor at Community College at uh, Everett Community College in Washington, and also the author of The Eunuch. Welcome. welcome. Happy to be here, ladies. So, you know, one of the things is, is uh, as I was saying, when we love to talk about the story of how one gets to, first off, becoming a professor, you know, how do you make the decision to become a professor? Then from professor, now you're into being an author. So if you just want to share a little bit about your journey of how you got here. I really do see myself as a teacher, even more than a professor. I love to be in the classroom and interacting with young people, talking about great books. And probably the origin of that was I had a, a really wonderful teacher when I was in high school. His name was Robert Burroughs, and he taught a three-year course on Western civilization, history, and literature. And he could really make not only history come alive, but things like poetry and painting and architecture. It was a relatively kind of comprehensive and in-depth course for a public high school. I went to public high school and northern Minnesota in the late 1970s. And so Mr. Burroughs was just this kind of charismatic uh, and even a dramatic figure. The summer between our junior and senior years, he took us to Europe. We spent uh, three weeks at Cambridge University taking classes, uh, being exposed to this to the wonderful and ancient Oxbridge University uh, system. And then we spent another couple of weeks on the continent, Paris and Salzburg and Rome, Vienna. And it was just quite quite an experience. And so he kind of awakened in me a love for the arts. And I think that's really really the start of it. And then the the, the next story is is my education. But I'll just start with that right there for y'all. What a great opportunity. Yeah, it was really tremendous. Again, it was it was a it was a public high school, and um, I worked at a country club as a busboy, s- saved money over the summers uh, to pay for the trip. It was an exposure to European culture. We spent a lot of time in churches, yeah. right, looking at various architecture, the Romanesque, the Gothic, the, uh, the Rococo. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. It has such a old feel to it, you know, when you're from the United States and then you go to Europe and that. Yeah, old culture that you just feel everywhere you go. You There's know, a rich history. To yes, be yeah, a rich history, and these and many of the the towns and cities are beautiful. Cambridge, England, this university town, it has you know thirty some colleges. Many of them were built like in the you know fourteenth and fifteenth century, and so it has it had this real medieval feel, and it kind of captured my imagination. And of course, at the time, I was a big J.R.R. Tolkien fan, and was reading The Lord of the Rings, and was kind of kind of fascinated and even kind of a little bit drunk on what we used to call anglophilia or you know uh, these oxford dons who wrote these books and there was a lot of kind of romanticism behind it my attraction to a life of study at a university and then i, I was really fortunate enough to go to a really nice really solid liberal arts college in southern minnesota uh, st olaf college it was just this wonderful place, and I studied philosophy and religion and literature there. And I just became enamored uh, with the life of the mind, and decided that I would make uh, I would try to make a life out of it and go to graduate school and become a, a professor. And you know, kind of against the opposition of my father. My father was a businessman, a practical guy. He was in banking, and uh, he wasn't really supportive. He he let me do it and didn't say anything, but I I, I did kind of feel his displeasure. 
he didn't he didn't really see it as as practical and, and financially uh, sustainable. And in many ways, he was right. I spent a long time in graduate school in various masters and PhDs programs where where I would just read and study and learn how to write. And it was kind of while I was in graduate school, I realized you know this writing thing is pretty cool. Maybe I'll give my I'll try my hand at fiction someday. And so that's kind of when that when that began. Well, I was in graduate school in in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. Well, what are your degrees in? Because I think sometimes that leads to understanding more where your ideas come from. Yeah. I mean, my undergraduate degree was in philosophy. I kind of minored in religion. I was really a religious person as a young guy, as a young man. I had a powerful conversion experience to Christianity when I was uh, about 15 years old. And then I got involved in some of the kind of extreme movements of the Pentecostal church. And it I don't want to say it was a bad experience. In many ways, it was a great experience. But it was, in the end, I found it kind of cohesive and narrow and, and, and anti-intellectual in a bad way. And um, I left the church in my early 20s and became an agnostic, kind of an, what you'd call an apostate, you know. And, I, and so, so while I was in grad, so while I was in as an undergraduate, I, I was just looking for ways to try to understand. Uh, not only my religious experience in Christianity, but then my disaffection, my alienation from it. It was this existential conundrum for me, how I how I could be swept up into this kind of religious spirit. It was very meaningful and powerful at the time. And then, and then I became so disillusioned with it and lost my faith and, and really kind of entered a, a crisis of meaning. Uh, and <laughs> I don't know if philosophy helped uh, <laughs> or not, uh, but that was the, kind of the idea. And then after that, after a few years of kind of uh, working a series of service jobs, I decided I want to kind of pursue my academic life. And I ended up taking a, a master's uh, of uh, theological studies degree at the Harvard Divinity School. And this was in the kind of early-ish 1990s. And while I was at Harvard, I was I was studying ancient religion and biblical studies and all this kind of really cool stuff. And I had a really good friend who was doing a PhD in the yard in Assyriology, which is basically the study of ancient Mesopotamian cultures. And we were like really close, my friend Jenny Meyer, and she's this brilliant young woman. And it was through her, I became kind of uh, introduced to this ancient Sumerian and Akkadian cultures, which when I ended up writing uh, the novel that I, my, uh, that my first novel that I actually completed, I set in this ancient world that I was introduced to by my friend, Jenny who eventually did complete her PhD in Assyriology and, and has had this wonderful career at various great universities in the country. So that's kind of where all that started. Nice. Well, it kind of sounds like I hear this theme of you just like to learn. You like to read. You like to kind of broaden your mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. I tell my students all the time that there's really not a real difference between an instructor or professor and a student. I mean, professors and and teachers, we're just we're students, too, I, uh, but we just have spent more time doing it. Right. And so I, I try to talk about my learning process as a student and, uh, you know, share with my students what's worked for me, what I find interesting and, you know, how I try to understand whether it's history or a, a, or a poem like the Iliad. I, I kind of take them through my own learning experience so that they can have an encounter, you know, with, you know, great works of art or powerful literature. So the director of my dissertation said that all all good teachers are good students. And so, and I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed of being a lifelong student. 
I think we're all lifelong students. I think people just don't realize it that, you know, life is always about learning something new. Never stops. Yeah, you know, exactly. And it's really interesting because I think a lot of times you'll hear like people and especially students, because sometimes I work with students and when they have to do uh, the more old English style of writing, it's very confusing for them. Yes. So oftentimes they're very turned off by it immediately. When you're when you're teaching, a, I've been a literature teacher for 25 years. And so when I'm teaching a, a play by Shakespeare and it's written and it's, it's considered modern English, but it's really like reading a foreign language, you know, this kind of a late 16th, early 17th century English language. And so we have to kind of learn how to translate it. And if we're reading a novel by Jane Austen, even um, her sentences are very long and she's got uh, uh, vocabulary is strange. And so so when we're, when we're approaching this, these older works of literature, there is a real act of translation that's going on on the level of language, not just the kind of cultural and historical context. And so you you kind of have to kind of take the students where they are and begin to try to open up these great works of art. And then when it kind of clicks for them, it's really exciting and kind of wonderful to behold. It kind of sounds like that's what it was for you with your teacher, that they kind of it clicked with you and then this yeah. new world opened up. It is kind of what they, I don't want to say maybe an epiphany or it's like a revelation or, or an illumination. All of a sudden you see something that previously you didn't see and it feels kind of revelatory. Uh, it's like when you discover a musical style for the first time, whether it's like hip hop or jazz, something that maybe is not your natural kind of thing to enjoy, um, depending on your kind of cultural background. I had that experience with jazz. With jazz. jazz can be very alienating and strange to the average listener, but I had someone kind of like, like initiate me into it doing baby steps. And it it, it really felt like this religious experience when I, I think it was like John Coltrane playing uh, um, the favorite things and the kind of the pleasure and the joy that I, that I received from experiencing that piece of music was kind of transcendent. It was powerful. And you can have that with so many different things, whether it's uh, you know architecture or painting or poetry, right? That's one of kind of my aspirations as a teacher is to try to get my students to have these to experience the power, the beauty, and the even profundity of a poem or a novel or a painting. Right. And it sounds like you, you know, you've been really impacted by the arts and that just as a side note, do you play any instruments? No, I don't. And I think that's one of the, the uh, uh, I mean, I, I would love to be musical. I have no rhythm. I cannot sing um, and don't play any instruments, but I, I love, love, love music. That desire, I mean, writing for me is just kind of a consolation or a compensation for my lack of musical ability and talent. Okay. Well, I think it's interesting too, because I think when people even, when they, they don't think of music as something that is very cultural and you know, when you listen to music from even around the world, how much you learn about those different places just through their music. But at the end of the day, there's still commonalities in it. There's still more commonality in the music. And yeah. I think it's that's very similar with writing, too, whether it's done, you know, in the 16th century, 17th. It doesn't matter. There's right. still a story to be told. Right. There's stories to be told. And it really, ultimately, it's about human experience. And I think that I think you really, really got at something powerful. I mean, I mean, I, I took the uh, you know introductory Shakespeare course when I was an undergraduate, 19 years old. We read your ob- obligatory 10 plays, 
including Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, yeah, you know, they say it's good, but, you know, I tried to have an experience with it. But, you know, I, I think I only got so much out of it, maybe 20% of what I could have got out of it. And then later in my 30s, when I was at the University of Washington, we had this great Shakespeare professor and he got really sick one year and they kind of tapped me to take over his class. And I really had not taken Shakespeare. So I had to read all these plays and kind of get up to speed on Shakespeare really, really quickly. And all of a sudden I said, oh, my God, Shakespeare is as wonderful and great as everybody says he is. But 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 at this time I was in my mid 30s and I, I knew what life was. I had a parent die. I had my heart broken romantically. I knew what it was like to struggle with money. I was politically disaffected. I'd seen abuses of power on the national level, right? You know, you know, wars that the country started that I didn't approve of. And all of a sudden, and that's all the stuff that Shakespeare writes about, all that stuff, right? Because um, I remember teaching Hamlet, which is about a young man grieving the death of his father, uh, teaching that play within a year and a half after my own father died. I went, oh, it's all here. It is all here. And that's the thing about, you know, these great canonical works of art. They're about the human experience, which I think is universal, regardless of history and culture. Yeah. And it does make a difference when you when you go back and revisit something and you've had all those life experiences. Yeah, right. Uh, because we often experience, you know, we're born alone, we die alone, and often we suffer alone. But what I think that great art tells us is that you're not alone. Other people have gone through everything you've gone through, bankruptcy, death of a child, these things that are really, really unsettling changes of fortune are intrinsic to just being a human being. It's part of the life situation. But when they happen to you, it's devastating and and, and deeply, deeply confusing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so to find your experience portrayed meaningfully with nuance and without comforting platitudes is a wonderful thing. And doesn't it make you wonder why we we do have young adults read these classical works? And it's yeah, so interesting right. because some of them never go back and read them again. No, yeah. It's, it's, not, it's like, I don't know what that meant. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the problem with school really is that is that is that it's work, right? It's assigned reading, right? And you know, when I'm told to do X. I like to do why, right? <laughs> so that's how reading should be. It should be it should be done in secret on the sly. You read stuff you're not supposed to read. Anything that's assigned by adults automatically can kind of turn off young people. It's like it's what's one of the difficulties that's just kind of built into the teaching experience. And so, as a teacher, you have to find a way around that because for them it's work. Why would they listen to me? I'm a, 60 years old. I'm an old man. You know what do I know? So you have to find a way around that kind of opposition that's kind of built into the experience. Were your parents readers? Yeah, both my parents were big, big readers. And so, uh, and they had a, you know, a big library. And and my my parents weren't like major intellectuals or anything, but my mother was an English major and an English teacher for a while. When I was about 11 or 12, I started reading through my parents' library, you know, all these books that I probably shouldn't have read that weren't, you know, adult content kind of things. And these were kind of like the, you know, in 1960s, 1970s bestseller stuff, like, you know, Shogun, James Michener, I don't know, The Godfather, Mario Puzo, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so I just kind of kind of went through my mom's library when I was between the ages of 12 and 15. And my parents always had a book, both of them, always. I think that's something that's really interesting is even though they you know, sometimes parents, you know, they lead by an example they don't even realize. Yeah. 
my mom was such an avid reader as well. And I think all of her kids are, all of her kids. Yeah. yeah. And then she probably did like hit you over the head. You need to read more, right? It just, it's just something that they did. Right. And we always and, got in trouble for reading too much because we weren't doing our chores. Well, yeah. To, well, that's how it's done. It's like when your parents just say mow the lawn or shovel the snow off the sidewalk, that's when you sneak up to your room and pull the book off the shelf, right? That's right. a way to uh, slack off and avoid work. I mean, that's the best way to do it. <laughs> it's interesting because what does reading do for you? I mean, why, you know, because I mean, we have a friend who's such an avid reader and for her, it's it's her way to go into other worlds, into, you know, she's having a rough day. She gets to escape that, whatever's happening in that moment. What is it for you? Uh, it's a way to get out of myself. I mean, the older I get, the more I realize that that all my problems are stem from myself. You know, the noise that's in my head, the stories that are going on in my mind, right? That, that, that voice that won't ever stop. There's a kind of a narcissism there or self-absorption, right? And so anything I can do to experience the non-self, the not me, whether it's, you know, playing cribbage with my wife or going for a walk with my dog or reading a book, that's good. So there's that. But I also think that reading is also, um, you're, you're exercising parts of your being, your, your, the intellectual part of your being, the spiritual part of yourself, where you're reading about another person's life that's portrayed in all of its kind of complexity and nuance. Right. And so I read a lot of philosophy, a lot of history, a lot of fiction, a lot of poetry. And I'm just looking for way, the ways that writers portray the human experience, whether it's in poetic or narrative form, so I can understand myself better, so I can understand other people better, so I can understand this kind of this mysterious and often troubling thing uh, that is life. But then it's also just a lot of really good fun. It's just, it just can be entertainment, it can be distraction. There's a lot of pleasure in it. Well, it's so different than watching a movie because the movie is somebody else's conceptualization of what is right. Written. Whereas That's I think right. when you read a book, before you even know it, you're playing this out in your mind. It's it it's come it comes to life. Yeah, the reader is really participating in the experience, this yes. interaction between the the words on the page that the author put down. And now you're taking those words and interpreting and, and giving them life in your own imagina imagination, right? And so the reading experience is, is, is in some ways more active than, you know, watching a movie or a film. There's film as entertainment and there's film as art, right? And then, mm -hmm. then there's all this stuff kind of in between that's both entertainment and art. And, and I like all three different kind of levels of the uh, cinematic experience. But, you know, when I want to blob out on the, on the couch after a hard day of work, I, I might watch some cheesy comedy where I don't have to think at all. And it's, it's, it's the equivalent, equivalent of like smoking a joint or something, right? I want to anesthetize myself, right? But if I want to watch a, a, a film by Kurosawa or the French director Truffaut, you know, that's going to require me to be really kind of present and kind of watch what the filmmaker is doing as an artist. And there's just, there's just there's different levels to kind of appreciate, appreciate it, right? I feel more satisfied or fuller after an experience with film or reading where I have to do a little bit of the work. And, you know, in writing your book, so you when you sit down to write, you have an idea, you kind of conceptualize what it is that this work is going to mean to you. Do you have conversations with people who have read your book and see, because they're going to have a, maybe a different interpretation or the feel of the book, it might feel very different to them versus for you. Is that what you're looking for? Are you trying to have them see this, these characters more the way that you conceptualize them? 
Well, when I wrote the book, I, I, I wasn't really thinking about my audience that much. In fact, the only audience I was really writing for was myself. I wanted to write the book that I always wanted to read. I wanted to write the book that uh, I would go to the bookstore or the library, the book that wasn't on the shelf. Okay. Wonder that book, right? So initially, the audience was me. So I was writing towards my taste, things that I like, using the language that I found intriguing, the mood and the tone. And the book is kind of a dark comedy. There's lots. There's some satire in it. Mm-hmm parody, um, that kind of thing. And that, that was when I was writing the book in my, I really wrote it between age like 40 and age 52 or something like that. So I was a different person back then in my forties. And I kind of, I kind of liked that kind of darker comedic look at the human experience. So I was kind of constructing my own narrative around that mood, that tone then. And, uh, so it's just what I liked. Right. But lo and behold, you know, once it got published, there's a lot of different kind of readers uh, out there and people, see things differently. I've, I've had people read the book and didn't, didn't see it as a comedy at all, didn't find any of the humor attractive or even present on the page. And that kind of surprised me. A lot of people thought the book was darker. Well, the book is kind of dark. It's a hard look at a very difficult subject. So a lot of human suffering in it and kind of a, an absurdist kind of dark take on that human suffering. And that's not everybody's cup of tea. And I was aware that there would be a lot of different kind of reader response. I knew that there was an audience out there for the book. So, I mean, the people that like the book really, really like it a lot. But then there's people that are turned off by it, people who don't get it. People go, well, it's all right, whatever. You know, so you, the whole kind of spectrum from negative to positive is what you're going to find. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you find that with any literature. You know, you either have those that extremely, I mean, when you look at people who love Shakespeare and other people are going to say, oh, my God, please don't let me have to open that book one more time. Yeah, right. It's when those in between who say, I kind of get it. It's not too bad. You're right. And I think that's the beauty of anything that's in the arts. I think that's the beauty of it because each person who experiences it is having a different experience. There's something for everyone. Exactly. Yeah, maybe something for everyone. I once read a a novel say that as a a writer, you only read, you only really need about seven or eight good readers. And by that, he meant like, you know, a reader that would kind of try to understand what you were trying to do. Mm -hmm. What What were your intentions as an artist, as a writer? What were you trying to achieve? So you're thinking about kind of genre, you know, how serious is this? You know, do they have something to say about your subject and then and judge whether you executed on it or not, right? Because not everybody's going to kind of understand what, what, what are the intentions of the writer here? What did they try to do and did they succeed in doing it? But those, but those readers are out there mm-hmm. and, um, and, and you're kind of writing for those readers, someone who's going to kind of get what you're trying to do. And then you have to accept their verdict whether it's pro or con. So you've written the book, of course, being the author. Do you ever think to yourself, you know, in 10 years, if I go back and read the book, because in 10 years, you're going to be a different Charles. I mean, we we continue to evolve and do all of these things. Do you think that you'll have the same love of the novel? Do you think you'd be more critical? Of it? What do you think? Well, I, I've actually finished the book 10 years ago. And then it took about five, six years to find a publisher. And then the publisher put it on a schedule. And then once that, once it got accepted by the Gabberhead, my, my, uh, it's a small press in Wyzetta, Minnesota. Once it got accepted, I had to wait two or three years and there was COVID. So when the book finally came out, came out in 2023, and uh, I, I basically had finished it in 2014. So there'd been almost 10 years between when I was kind of done with the book. Of course, I did a little bit more revision and a lot of editing to get it published. Right, so, so there's a tremendous distance between me and the book right now. So when I pick up the book and read it now, I don't even 
Yeah, I am a different Charles. I'm not the person who wrote the book. And so part of my reaction is like, how did I do this? <laughs> and where did this come from? Right. And I have to say, for the most part, I'm very pleased with with it. I read it right now. It's not the book I would write now. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm so not that person. If you were going to write a book now, what would it be? Well, I am writing a book right now. Um, I'm almost done with my second novel. And it's quite different in some ways. In, in, in some ways, it's... Uh, so my first book, I mean, we really talked about what it's about. The, the It's called The Eunuch. It's a, it's a kind of a... I describe it as an erotic tragedy. And it's based on a series of forged... Uh, it's, it's based on these tablets that were unearthed, these, these cuneiform tablets that were unearthed during the Iraq War. And the novel is a forgery, a forged translation of those tablets. So the setups look kind of complicated, but it reads like a historical novel written by uh, a eunuch. The narrator's name is Nurgle, and he's the he's the chief harem scribe and the, uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II's harem. And he's telling the story of life. He's trying to give give us an, a behind the scenes look at the court of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the days that are running up to this big war. Nebuchadnezzar is famous for invading Judah, right, uh, and sacking Jerusalem and, and and destroying the temple, and uh, and then the Babylonian captivity where they uh, deported you know tens of thousands of Jews to Babylon to live in exile and work for the king. So the, the, the novel is a story of this war that happens in the Middle East, the lead up and all the kind of machinations by the priests and the counselors that the eunuch is privy to because he's so close to the king. But it's also a love story. He falls in love with one of the harem girls whom the king is also infatuated with. So there's a love triangle, a thruple, if you will, to use <laughs> the kids talk about these days. Mm-hmm. So 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 that was the, that was the thing. And the novel I'm writing right now is uh, about a, a young man who spends too much time on the internet. Okay. What made you decide to write uh, the eunuch from that perspective of uh, the eunuch? Um, all right. So um, I was born in 1961. Uh, so that means I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, on, I'm on the very tail end of the baby bloomers. And I don't, even though uh, I grew up in boomer culture, I'm generalizing here. I mean, I didn't have a draft number for the Vietnam War. You know, when the Vietnam War ended, I was 14. I didn't really go through the 60s and, that the, you know, the political and sexual mm-hmm. revolution that went on. You know, watched it from afar as a young, you know, at, you know, at, at eight, nine years old, right? And so I'm kind of the tail end of this generation, right? When I started reading seriously, I, I read the writers of my grandparents and my father's and my mother's generation, uh, mostly Jewish writers, uh, guys like Saul Bellow, Norman Mailer, uh, Philip Roth, uh, these kind of male writers of the silent generation, right? Uh, and and these guys were uh, prolific, uh, brilliant. I called them the quote unquote the big swinging dicks of the uh, World War II and post war generation. And so and so they were kind of confident brass. They were a little bit they were, they were sexist or they were more than a little bit sexist in some cases, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of their social attitudes were very were very kind of antiquated, but but nevertheless they were brilliant, wrote well, you know, were great writers, right? And I knew that I, I couldn't write like that, right? I was just from a different generation, a different experience. You know, the women's movement had really happened, and uh, you know, the gay rights movement, and now we have everything that's going on with the LPGDQ uh, movement, right? And I'm very sympathetic to all that. I'm also sympathetic to the feminist movement, so I couldn't really write. 
from the position of a hardcore, you know, what they call a cisgendered heteronormative male, right? That wasn't going to fly, right? Um, which I understand, you know, um, you know, the movement, at least in the academic circles that I inhabit, is about kind of decentering, right, the white male voice, right? Uh, you know, for good and for ill, right? So as a kind of a white male writer, I go, well, how am I going to be able to write a story about love and sex and power without sounding like an asshole? So I adopted this position of this powerless individual as a way to kind of around that that problem. Th that's just one of the reasons. Okay. Well, it's interesting because in the book, you really very much see that hierarchy and that perception from somebody at the bottom looking at it and where their place is. And, you know, always uh, equate it to, you know, like when you have a uh, business, a corporation or whatever, you know, the support staff or the, those at the bottom get very little recognition, even though they do a lot, you know, yeah. they're key. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was interested in powerlessness in part because I was a graduate student for 10 years in my thirties, you know, I lived in a, a one room rental with a hot plate and the bathroom down the hall, had no money, had no car, no life insurance. Right. And, uh, you know, and very little status, and I was in my you know early to mid thirties. The university is a tremendously hierarchical place. Mm -hmm. Lots, a lot of hierarchy in uh, American colleges and universities, and yet on the other hand, they proclaim themselves to be the most kind of egalitarian and progressive and forward thinking institutions. So the politics at most universities that I attended are all kind of right on left progressive politics, right? Politics, which I'm sympathetic to and, and understand. Yet these places are are, are, are relatively in elite institutions, right? With a tremendous amount of hierarchy and that kind of dissonance between the kind of official politics and ideology of most progressive colleges and then the reality of the kind of power dynamics for those who work in it, that dissonance, that kind of contradiction, you can even call it a kind of a hypocrisy really. Well, you know, I felt it in my bones. And so I was looking for a way to write about that without, without writing what they call a campus novel. I didn't want to write a college novel. Who cares? What, I didn't want to write, who cares about a graduate student, you know, complaining about his lot? I chose to do the PhD. This is what I wanted to do. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to write about that experience directly. So I was looking for like an analog. Okay. Well, I think it's interesting because I think reading the book and then listening to how you described it for yourself, you know, I mean, I think you then conceptualize the book in a very different way, maybe then. And, and so maybe it's that kind of that teaching theme, because I think if you go and you read the book and you don't under, you're kind of trying to figure out what is the whole purpose of the book. You know, I mean, I think you can see the hierarchy in it and you can see all those things in that power struggle, that love triangle, all of those things. And even sometimes where you find those people that become your, the people that encourage you or nurture you or whatever that is, uh, whatever word you want to use for it. And I think it does kind of mimic life in a way, you know, but I think listening to you talk about what your premise was really kind of brings that, brings the novel more to this place of understanding. Yeah, I mean, one way that people talk about historical novels, and, and my novel is a historical novel with quotation marks on it. It's not a directly historical novel, but it reads like a historical novel. Mm -hmm. Historical novels are are often these kind of coded narratives about the present. Mm -hmm. And when I was writing about Babylon, I was really thinking about the United States as a kind of uh, you know, modern Babylon, a powerful, decadent, 
empire in decline. And when I was writing about Babylon's war on Judah, I was really writing about the United States wars in the Mideast, in particular the war of Iraq, and that began in March of 2003, right? So I was writing about this powerful imperial power that was invading a smaller uh, nation, and I was trying to kind of figure out, well, what could go wrong, right? We're going to invade this little country called Iraq. What possibly could go wrong? And we've kind of seen the consequences of that invasion play out in a very negative way in the last 20 or so years. And so I had that kind of picture in my mind that I wasn't I was going to I wasn't going to write about being in graduate school and the war in Iraq directly, but I was going to find a code about it. So I wrote about another empire in decline, Babylon, which is this kind of power. It's a powerful trope or metaphor for kind of a powerful, decadent, politically oppressive empire. Right. You know, the same way that Rome kind of plays that same role as well. Mm-hmm. Babylon was always kind of seen as the uh, antithesis of Jerusalem, which was the center of Judaism and Christianity and now Islam, right? So you've got these, these monotheistic religions that teach us to love our neighbor and care for the poor and the widow, right? And then you have, these, then, then you have the opposite of that, which is this kind of Babylon, which is a powerful political state that's basically run on uh, Darwinian red tooth and claw values, right? Power and aggrandizement and, and wealth and status, right? And violence, right? So uh, I was trying to write about all those things through this story of Babylon and, and the eunuch and the king and, and his harem. Right. So, you know, after you completed this novel and, you know, you kind of got to sit back, you know, it was completed, it was published and stuff. What was your biggest takeaway from it as Charles, you know, not necessarily the author, but as you? I don't know. It's a, it was a real kind of a mixed experience. Once you're done with a big project that has been like your life focus and has given your day-to-day life a tremendous amount of meaning, uh, there's a, there's an emptiness there. Uh, there's a loss. Like, well, what am I going to do now? Or I need, I need something to kind of fill this role that this, the writing of this book has played in my life for so long. And then as you're writing it, you're having all sorts of fantasies about um, the reception of the book, you know, fearing its failure, of course, but then, you, you, then you've got these kind of delusional fantasies of its success and what it's, how it's, it's going to change your life. I think the experience for a lot of writers, certainly in my case, that the publication of my book was more of a whimper than a bang, you know, it's, it, ended, it ended in a, didn't end with a bang, it ended with a whimper, right? So, um, I mean, I've gotten a lot of people read the book and I've had some good feedback, but there's just so many novels that are published every year. And it's really hard to get people to, to, to pay attention, to look at it, to read it, to review it, right? So you have to kind of deal with that. And, and, and you have to realize that really the most important thing in something like this is the, is the actual project itself, the writing of it. You know, it's a cliche that the journey is really more important, the destination. You know, the, the publication of the book, like, you know, didn't radically change my life at all. But it gave me, it did give me a sense of kind of uh, satisfaction that I, I completed a long-term project. I fulfilled an ambition that I had for a long time. And writing a novel is actually really, really difficult to do, much harder than I thought it would be. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of glad it's over with. <laughs> was it like the uh, it started the bug that that you wanted to go on and write more after that? Or was that always the plan before you even wrote this one that you knew you wanted to continue to write after this? Well, yeah, I mean, I thought I would continue to write after that, but it's really hard to find a, a project or to conceive of an idea that has legs. And so what, what at least happened in my case, I started two or three other projects that didn't really get anywhere beyond the first 10 pages, mm-hmm. right? The first 15 pages. And I realized, wow, it's actually kind of, it's like, it's like you know, 
when lightning strikes, when you when you get an idea for a book that has legs, that that, that you're going to have enough energy and will to stick with it day after day after day uh, through the hard parts of writing. You know, when you when you when you got writer's block and when you can't really figure out what's going to happen next, right? To kind of push through that and and, and complete a project. I took that for granted because then I, I had a couple of ideas that just didn't go anywhere and they were good ideas and I, they're books that I wanted to write. And maybe one of them might end up someplace someday, but I, I don't know. It might not. It probably won't. So I realized that actually finding an idea, something like the eunuch, it's guy in a harem who's the body man essentially to Nebuchadnezzar. That was an idea that that I was kind of smitten with and drunk on long enough to kind of to, to, to spend 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I wrote every day. I worked on it. That's all I thought about for 10 years and wrote every day from two to four hours, right? Um, it was a kind of obsession. I discovered that that experience is kind of difficult to replicate, uh, although many writers do that and, and produce 10, 15, 20 novels in their lifetime. These are extraordinary, exceptional people. And so I'm envious of that kind of writer. But I eventually did find a project two or three years after I was done writing the eunuch that. I stuck with and uh, where the idea and uh, the execution of it was it attractive enough and challenging enough to me to kind of stick with it. And that's the second book. But in some ways, it's much less ambitious than the first book. It's going to be smaller and was easier to write. Well, it is kind of interesting because, you know, I think it all, it all it's all a journey. And I think for a lot of people, you know, it's funny. I just you're the only author I've heard say that, you know, they have these grandiose ideas and then, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out the way they want it to work out. And, but understanding that the journey of writing the book, there was growth in that there was a challenge. Yeah. And I, and, and I don't know, maybe some authors, it's more about, you know, there's this expectation that they have to publish. You have a deadline, you have to publish. So I wonder even with them, does some of that passion and some of that drive really that internal drive more go away with that versus writing a novel because it's something that you really want to do and it's not about some other deadliner yeah i mean there's a lot of writers are just total pros you know they got the deadline they have the contract for two or three books or whatever and they're just going to produce 500 to a thousand words a day they get up every day they produce 500 to a thousand words and if you do that you'll have a book done in a year or two or at least a manuscript right uh, they're 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 pros, man, and 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 many and a lot of writers are like that, and that's very admirable, right? Guys right. do that, but I, I have a full time job that I take very seriously, <laughs> and so it's hard to find time to write, you know, with my teaching schedule. I've gotten more serious about my teaching in the last ten years, you know, um, so th- there's there's that, but I think part of it is, I mean, I had a really good friend that um, wanted to be a novelist, and he was talented went to a really good MFA program in New York and he never published anything. He had a lot of incomplete manuscripts that never, that he never finished. And he said, part of his problem is that he was doing it because he wanted to be seen as a novelist. He wanted to be a novelist as opposed to writing the project that he was on. So he wanted the identity of the novelist. Oh, okay. And, and, and that's a trap that many of us fall into that, Hey, it'd be cool to be a novelist. It'd be really, it's prestigious. Well, you know, or it used to be. And maybe I can get a little bit of fame, a little bit of money. It's deeply, it's a, it's a, you know, for some of us, it, to be a novelist is this deeply seductive identity, right? At least for this, my friend, he, 
he said that was a trap for him because the writing of the novels it's a different thing you 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 have to it has to be about it has to be about i really want to become a better writer i want to become a good writer i really want to work on my style i really want to learn how to do this and become really really good at it right but there's and i think that's the thing that that drove me i just wanted to be good at it uh, i was not necessarily a natural so it took a long time so i spent my time trying to get try to get better and that and that that sustained me it's really good to um, hear your insight and perspective on that, because I think uh, it's true. A lot of times, maybe somebody comes up with the idea that they want to write um, and have something like that. But if they're so enamored with the idea of the success of the book that, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you talk about how much you gleaned from the writing of it and that that was, you know, sort of the rewarding yeah. part for you. That's really cool. Because when you start, you're not an artist. You're you're aspiring to be an artist, right? But in order to be an artist, you have to learn your craft. And in novel writing, you have to be pretty good at about 10 to 12 different things. You know, dialogue, uh, exposition, description. Uh, you need to come up with some sort of plot. You need a voice and a tone, right? You need to kind of create something that's plausibly three-dimensional. There are all these skills. And, and when I started out, I, I was I was probably pretty good at maybe two of them or three of them. And there's 10 other things that I had to learn how to do that weren't natural to me. Two, if something's not resonating with you, and it's one of those things that feels forced, you would probably have a lot of incomplete manuscripts or incomplete anything. I don't care what it is. If if it's not truly resonating with you, and it's not something that you would sit there and say, this is something I would read or those kind of things, I think that we set ourselves up to not complete I'm looking at some of my failed uh, manuscripts that are, you know, in my drawer right now, you know, there's parts of it I think are okay, but some of a lot of it's just pretty bad. It's just not any good. And I don't have the energy to rewrite or revise, right. And to make them better. Right. And writers talk about this all the time that, you know, uh, I think, I think it was Brett Easton Ellis says that we all have like 30,000 really bad words in all of us that that have to come out. And in my case, it was more like 300,000 bad words. Right. (laughs) Or, you know, when you're, when you're learning to write, you're just producing all this stuff. That's just, it's, you know, it might be at best, it's like, okay. But when you go back and you look at it, you go, oh, this is all pretty bad. And so you have to kind of, you have to be willing to endure that kind of humiliation of just being really bad at it for a long, for a long time. Right? As, you know, so I was bad at it for a very long time. I tell my clients all the time, life is practice and everything we do, we have to practice it daily in order to get better at it. Yeah, just to get like pretty good at it, right? Just to get like okay and kind of passable, right? I think I'm pretty good. I think I'm passable as a writer, right? But it, but it, you know, it took 10 years of hard work. You know, I'm not a I'm not a prodigy and I'm certainly no genius, right? I just worked at it really hard and persevered. Well, wonderful. And hopefully other people will persevere. Thank you so much for being on and for sharing these words of wisdom. Hopefully other people who are listening and want to be a writer get some ideas and for our audience out yes, there. If you have not read the book, here's the unit. You can find it on Amazon and I would imagine other bookstores, but you know, Amazon is the place to go. <laughs> but anyway, take time, read it and send in a review, you know, and once again, thank you so much for joining us. We truly appreciated it. And for our audience out there, thank you. Remember, you can follow us on 
Yes, you can find us on YouTube, Adventures of Two Girls in a Pod. You can find us at twogirlsinapod.com. And we are also on all of the listening platforms that you get your podcasts on. And we have a Facebook page as well. Yes, please feel free to follow, subscribe. Yes, thank you so much. And we will be back next week. We appreciate you coming on today, Charles. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks, ladies. Enjoy the conversation.